Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Secure the Insecure, you might be distressed by some things that you do hear. If that's the case, please do contact the Samaritans. You can call them on 116123. That's 116123. Or check out samaritans.org. Secure the Insecure with Johnny Seifert is sponsored by Jennings and Co-Financial Planning. Helping to make sense of money. And welcome to Secure the Insecure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seifert, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. Every day people come into your life and can become your favourite. Your favourite pop star, your favourite chef, your favourite actor... But what if someone came into your life and became your favourite mental health advocate? We wouldn't have said that five years ago, but I think it says a lot about the world that we live in today. And my guest this week is exactly that. At the age of 24, he suffered with depression and once tried to take his own life. Since then, he's turned his life around and is now a successful writer with some of my favourite books, including Notes on a Nervous Planet, Reasons to Stay Alive... And, get this, my second best book I have ever read, which came out last week. It's incredible. You're going to be on an emotional roller coaster reading it, but we're going to go in-depth about it in this podcast. It's The Midnight Library. I'm delighted to say that Matt Haig joins me today on Security and Secure. Hello, Matt. Hello. Nice to be here, Johnny. Thank you so much for doing this for us. And I, I, I mean, I, I want to start the conversation about mental health in the biggest fit because i just said to you that you are a mental health advocate how do you find that title being attached to you i'm fine with it really i mean i don't really try or you know i don't really aim to have a particular role in relation to mental health i've just i like talking about it i occasionally talk about it i've written books obviously that deal with mental health some more directly than others i'm very lucky that i've got a publisher who doesn't just say okay we want another version of reasons to stay alive or another version of notes on a nervous planet and well let me write children's books and different stuff so I don't feel totally boxed in by that label and you know obviously I'm quite well known 
for the mental health stuff because you know my best-selling book was reasons to stay alive and you know i talk about it a lot on twitter and stuff but yeah i don't let it define me but i have no sort of shame or stigma about it because that's my whole point to just sort of talk about it as if it's any other part of life or existence i'm not too bothered either way the only thing i'd say is there have been times when a charity or um, someone official has asked me to have some kind of proper role or ambassador role. And I, I tend to shy away from that stuff. And I tend to sort of step back from that stuff because I don't feel, because I'm not a doctor, because I don't necessarily want to have extra responsibility on behalf of someone else. I'll be responsible for myself and say my own truth, but I don't, you know, with mental health, there's all a kind of baggage that goes with it in terms of what you're meant to say, what you're not meant to say. And I don't always get that 100% right. So in terms of officially representing a charity, I would slightly be reluctant on that, that part, you know, because I still see my main job as just being a writer. And yes, I do write a lot about mental health. But beyond that, I've been a little bit reluctant, a bit coy to um, step into that arena. And for example, if those listening that want to know what you kind of mean by you can't say certain things, for example, you wouldn't be able to say how someone committed suicide because you could be giving them an idea of what they could do. But the responsibility to yourself is also really important. How responsible are you actually to yourself? Because when you are talking about mental health, for me, it makes me think that it would take you back to a time of your life that you might not have been so happy and therefore it kind of opens that kind of worms again that you're trying to keep hidden away and move on from yeah to be honest it feels less like that for me when I wrote reasons to stay alive for instance I was you know that was the first time I'd publicly written about the very worst experiences of my life when I was suicidally depressed when I very nearly attempted suicide when I was having panic attacks which just seemed like they were from another planet where, you know, there was no end to the panic attack. It was just like a, a whole world of panic. I had agoraphobia, separation anxiety, a whole, a whole host of stuff going on that was just, had been building up for years and then it was suddenly there. But to be honest, even though I'd recovered largely from that, you know, I don't believe in a state of 100% mental health wellness or to feel like that because I feel like mental health is something as with physical health, we have to continually work at and it's an ongoing progress. And I find it kind of dangerous to think of myself as better, in inverted commas. Um, it's just a sort of ongoing journey. But um, yeah, it was, it was not a case of sort of like bringing everything back or having sort of like a flashback to the worst time in my life. It was more a case of like letting it go. And I think it felt like therapy. And I suppose it is the same as therapy because, you know, if you think about what therapy is, it's generally externalising the issues you have, the bad experiences you have, the traumas you, you've been through. And very often that you don't go back to it with those words. You actually sort of manage to shape it or get some sort of ownership or control over it. And I feel like if you've been through anything traumatic in your life, very often, in a way, it's still with you all the time. So you're not, it's not a case of going back to it, because it's with you anyway, it's more a case of letting go of it, I find. But it's not always the case, obviously. But you know, generally, with the book, it hasn't sent me back to depression by writing about depression. 
So is that a form of what they call cognitive behavioural therapy then, where you're adjusting the external stimuli to a situation then? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, apparently the sort of therapy I've done, you know, to myself is closest to CBT, but I, I didn't even know about CBT when I was recovering. It was just something I'd sort of worked out just through living and through time about, you know, acceptance. I mean, the big shift for me uh, mentally, I think, was a sort of shift from that feeling of life happening to me uh, and to actually realise, you know, I had some kind of agency in it. I might not have been able to control the depression itself, but I could control my response to the depression and how much I let it dictate how I behave. Or, you know, in the case of panic, you know, I was having a panic attack um, every time I left my house. But there was a little part of me that knew I had to keep on leaving the house because uh, it would just become a worse situation and I'd be underlining the panic. So I had to sort of like ignore what it, what these things were telling me. I had to ignore them to, to not give them any extra um, power. And, and, you know, so even though it was feeling very real and very intense and very in the foreground, I had to kind of... Um, disrespect it, continually rebel against um, my own mind. And I think that's a common situation for quite a few people when we're in recovery. They're having to do a lot of ignoring instincts and actually trying to rationalise and find a sort of inner therapist inside them. Denise Welsh was very clear about calling it the unwelcome visitor and humanising it. And uh, for those who are listening to this podcast, they can catch up on Denise's episode on episode 42. And she humanised it as the unwelcome visitor and made it a human almost to destroy. How do you find it when you are trying to change that mindset for you to make something like, right, I'm going to do this and my thoughts aren't going to hold me back? Because it's very simple and easy to say it. But how practical actually is that to do? Well, it gets easier with time because what time gives you is it it gives you examples of when you've done things before and if you've ever had a worse day or if you've ever overcome something worse then you've got that as your example of the time that you absolutely fought through some fear you were having say a panic attack behind the scenes on stage and you just literally felt like you couldn't speak and somehow you pushed yourself out on stage or whatever it is I think once you've got those examples you you know you are your own best role model if you've got those sort of examples in your past obviously if you're literally like it's your first experience of a, a sort of breakdown or a mental health thing and you don't know what's going on then this is the bad experience this is the bad experience that you'll look back on in the future and say oh my god I made it through that and it's very hard when you're in that bad experience to realize that but I think that you know if you were ever feeling different and better than you do at that moment then there's very possibly a time when you're going to feel better again and you don't stay at that state forever one thing for me is seeing it as weather that's not to belittle mental illness in any way you know seeing it as a sort of mind's weather system because you know a hurricane or a storm you can die in a storm you can die in a hurricane but the thing is about seeing it like weather is it's actually means you're not seeing it as yourself if you're caught in a storm you're caught in a storm you aren't the storm whereas I used to say to say I was a depressive that's how I used to describe myself I said oh I'm a depressive and I wasn't a depressive I, I was a person who had depression and you know that might seem a bit of a pedantic 
difference, but it's a massive difference because it's the difference between feeling something and being something. And once you disconnect those two things, well, for me, not maybe not for everyone, but for me, that was the big perspective shift. It, it made me realise that there was going to be another me who wasn't feeling this, or even if I was still feeling something bad, I'd have a different perspective of it. The I bit, the me bit, could change, you know, even if the depression doesn't. So while you're still saying, oh, I'm a depressive, it's like you're giving yourself up to depression. It doesn't magically reduce the power of it or anything, but it just gives you that framework where you become something different to what you feel so the storm can knock you off your feet the storm can be devastating it can smash things around you it can sort of destroy everything but at the end of the day you're not the storm and that understanding which only happens with time really where I saw myself as something different to what I was going through when I'd had so many fluctuations and ups and downs and highs and lows I realized that it's almost like meteorological it's almost outside of me that's not me but what if that representation of that storm is linked to a situation and you discover situation anxiety out of it, therefore being yeah. that you go over this thought in your... I mean, I'm, and we're going to kind of almost touch on one of the big factors of your book, The Midnight Library, but the, the fact of regrets and the book of regrets. And if the situational anxiety is that regret yeah. you've had in a previous uh, part of your life that did happen that you yeah. are trying to get over how do you let that storm pass when there's nothing you can do because it's something that happened in the past and everyone else has moved on from it but you yeah i mean I, it's a good point and i don't think denial is the answer i don't think you can sort of just sort of shut those things away and pretend they never happened and carry on as normal i mean i'm trying to think within you know solid examples of my own life i, I i'd go back to agoraphobia you know uh, and also train travel there was a time where literally every single time I stepped on a train I'd have a panic attack and it would be even before the door shut on the train or you know started moving because my memory was so strong and my association of trains and terror you know I hadn't been in a, tr in a train crash or anything it, all, all I was traumatized by was my previous <laughs> panic attacks on trains they were horrendous, you know, horrendous panic attacks, like thinking I was about to die, you know, total sweaty palms, you know, trying my hardest to look normal, but absolutely feeling dreadful inside. Then there would come a journey that was long enough. I went on a journey um, from London, Edinburgh trip on a train with um, my wife, who was then my girlfriend. And it was like a four hours on a train. And but I, I wasn't unable to sustain the panic for all that time. So it was moments of feeling tired and just a bit weary. And, and just having gone through that, I've started to have different associations of being on a train. So sometimes the way to ha move on from something is kind of to throw yourself into that thing to to keep on you know to get enough different associations that you have with something i've got a slight problem and i know this is slightly um this is one of the reasons probably why I, why i shouldn't be an official mental health ambassador but you know i have a slight issue with the whole concept of trigger warnings for two reasons one reason being that 
triggers are so subjective like you, you know they, they can be so subjective and often trigger warnings it's a very literal thing it's a very it seems a very crude mechanism that you know if, if it's a trigger about a certain topic because you've gone through a certain topic but you know if it's a trigger warning for depression you know i wouldn't there's so many different things that triggered flashbacks and it's always to do with places i'd been to where something had happened so shadows could be a trigger for me or you know there's a square in Leeds Millennium Square where I had a horrendous um, experience of just just internal head stuff and you know so I'd see a picture of Millennium Square and that would be a trigger for me um, so so that's one of the reasons I've got a problem with trigger one is because because like literally when you're depressed everything can be a trigger um, but also the other reason is that very often to move past with uh, th things it it's you know it, it almost encourages avoidance behavior i feel tri tri trigger warnings it's like saying your your mental health state depends on avoidance avoiding certain things and you know so so often with mental illness avoidance is the thing that creates the disorder you know think of agoraphobia you you feel horrendous outside outside world is the trigger you only get over agoraphobia by forcing yourself to have a panic attack, to force yourself into the fear. So, yeah, I, I understand when there's a very like like if it's a very specific type of violent incident and you were a victim of that kind of assault. And, you know, I can definitely see why it makes sense to have those literal trigger warnings. It's just for me, I feel like the whole idea of triggers is much more complicated. And sometimes it just seems a little bit too easy and a little too literal. A lot of the ways we have this mental health conversation. Well, that's the thing. And I think to an extent you are right. And thinking of places and physical things, that is very true because there almost could be an infinite list of triggers um, based on different experiences. But when you're thinking about conversations and as you said, if someone had been violent and that is a trigger yeah. or a conversation you've had with something, let's say, for example, you've said something to someone that you shouldn't have and that plays on your mind and you are so apologetic and they've, uh, they've uh, you know, they've accepted your apology, but six months down the line, you're still thinking about that conversation and yep. or that that person now has blocked their, uh, blocked you out their life and therefore five years later or 10 years later you're like but i'm still regretting that now how do you then deal with that because that trigger happened but you're never yeah. going to experience that moment again it's not like you're going to get on that train again you're going to go to no, leaders you true. said I think, you know, because it's very different, you know, like my mental health, you know, it's very different even to the character of Nora in the book, because my mental health experience, the thing that was traumatic for me, I think, was that I could never find the reasons. I can never find the reasons why I felt bad. So I, there were times at my very lowest and most suicidal where I wanted there to have been an inciting incident, where I wanted that me to be fe feeling grief for someone or, you know, to have you know, survive something horrendous or a car crash or something. I obviously, you know, I wasn't thinking in my right mind because that would be an equal terror of a different thing. But when I was in that state of total depression, I, I wanted to have wanted to have that feeling mean something, you know, because at the time, the thing which stuck made me suicidal was feeling totally trapped and the reason i felt trapped was i had no idea how i'd got into 
that mess so I therefore didn't know how I'd get out of that mess so at least I suppose if there is a clear trigger there's a clear um, cause and effect and if it's an avoidable cause then you know and it's it, it should probably be literally avoided I think the problem comes when it's a sort of trigger that you will encounter at some point. You know, I, I think in those cases, we, we've got to find somehow or try and train in a, some kind of resilience to cope with that when it comes up because we're going to have to deal with it. Um, even if it's dealing with it in terms of it's cropping up in our own mind or we're having flashbacks or something, there'd need to be some sort of therapy about acceptance or, you know, accepting the uncertainty of that. Um, there's a very good book, actually, which I, I, I'm banging on to everyone about because I've just read it through lockdown. It's probably the hope, most hopeful thing I've read during lockdown, um, which is it's a book called When Things Fall Apart. And this, this American Buddhist teacher called Pima Shudram. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not very religious at all, really. But um, I find a lot of Buddhist stuff kind of therapeutic because it's all about um, how we cope with uncertainty, uh, how we cope with suffering. And her idea is that a lot of the pains and mental traumas we feel in the Western world comes out of our uh, desire to have everything painless and to have everything perfect. And, and like we expect life to be without suffering. And she, she argues quite well that, you know, to have joy, to have happiness, to have calmness, to have peace, we we also need to have despair and suffer. And often they're intrinsic in the same whole. And it's a very much about acceptance. And that's a little bit of a tangent, but that's been that's been very helpful. Well, that tangent is, and I will will come on to the book as a whole. But there's a part of your book, I think it's page 111, because I've quoted it to so many people. Um, it's where you basically talk about that we start off as a seed and then we become a plant and then a tree. And as a tree, we have branches and then of those branches, we have twigs and we're on all these different adventures. And we're so unique that we have to go on, you know, what we would call a journey to get to the destination. So you have to go through the bad to get to the good. You had to be rejected by lots sort of book publishers yourself to get Canongate, who do publish you, <laughs> to give you that big deal yeah. and to get those amazing books out there. And you are your own tree. I'm my own tree. But as you said, you've got to go through that bad to get to the good. Yes, totally. And honestly, I, I, I say this a lot, um, that I have genuinely known more good stuff, more good times this side of um, my breakdown than I ever did before as a kid and as a young adult. Um, and I, I'm not I'm talking independently of career. I'm talking independently of literal stuff about, you know, writing reasons to stay alive uh, about directly. I'm just talking in general life stuff about gratitude you know when I was younger to be happy the bar was so high I had to have you know go out have the loudest music spiciest food most uh, you know violent movies whatever everything had to be sensation overload and I it was like I just couldn't cope with just sort of a neutral level I suppose it's a typical young man thing but I just couldn't cope with that neutrality of just being and since um, recovery you know I was so grateful because I'd spent three years in depression jealous of normality jealous of boredom jealous of just sort of feeling nothing and so when that finally came it gave me this kind of 
gratitude in in, in the mundane in, in in nothing happening in life you know everything I used to sort of resist and it's made in a weird way my experience of depression has made day-to-day -day life easier after that's not to say I'd want to live through those three years again and you know I will probably know further bouts of depression I've known various bouts over the years further bouts of anxiety and when I'm in those dips I, you know I, I, I totally would do anything not to be in them but having said that they, they've also been responsible for so much good stuff indirectly and um, I really do think it's hard to separate one from the other so we have to get to this point where we absolutely understand we can't be 100% happy all the time we might not be able to be 100% calm all the time but we have to realize that life is this kind of weather system where we have suffering sometimes we have joy sometimes we're going to know grief all of us are going to know grief in our lives and we're going to have these big transformative moments and we have all these taboos don't we where we don't like talking about death we don't like talking about dying we don't like only recently we started to talk comfortably a bit more about depression and these things that you talk about on your podcast it kind of by bringing everything into the light and accepting life warts and all we we you know that that i feel is how we get a kind of acceptance and resilience because really resilience is often used in the other way it's often used as in like man up don't talk about your feelings and all that but when i talk about resilience i mean like being able to sort of face anything and to talk about anything and voice anything so do you see yourself matt as having one life or do you think you're in your second life now um, well, I feel like we all have different versions of ourself within the same life. So, you know, there's a fancy scientific word, um, neuroplasticity, which which means uh, the very real process of how our brains change shape and structure through experience in our life. So in one sense, we actually do become different people through our experiences. So yeah, I mean, by 2015, um, when I wrote Reasons to Stay Alive, I felt very different to the version of me in 1999 to 2002, when I was still in total breakdown mode. I feel very different now to the person who wrote Reasons to Stay Alive and the person before, you know, we all become different people throughout life. And I think that's, that's, you know, on one level, it's a bit scary, but on one level, it's very sort of a therapeutic idea because when you're actually stuck in a moment in a situation, you want desperately to believe in change. And the problem is if you have a sort of mental illness when you're quite young, uh, sort of early start of adulthood, you actually think, wow, well, this, this is just going to be it. This is going to be my adult life. It's just going to be feeling this flat state or this state of terror or panic. And that's just what, what adulthood's going to be for me. This is just the way I'm wired. It's in my DNA. There's nothing I can do about it. And that's, that's for me, the most dangerous um, perspective. That's what nearly cost my life when I thought, you know, because I had, I'd never got out of it before. So I had no idea I could get out of it. Um, I find now, even when I have depression, there's, even when depression's telling me, oh, this is it, this time it's going to be different. Even when I'm in those situations, I, I kind of know that I've felt like that before, but I'm going to get out of it. But that first time, that's, that's what just why it snowboarded and snowboarded and snowboarded, because I just, you know, I felt terrified that this was it forever, which was not true.
And it's not true because you bring out the Midnight Library. As I said at the top of the podcast, the second best book I've ever read. The only reason it's not the first is because the first goes to Heather Morris for The Tattooist of Auschwitz because it really made oh, me yeah. understand the Holocaust. But yes. if I hadn't read that last October, it would be the Midnight Library. So for those that need to buy it, because essentially for me, it's a Bible and it's by my bedside and it's something I can always go back to. Tell everyone what it's about. Um, well, the library of the title, the Midnight Library itself, is a library um, that exists between life and death, where one woman, Nora Seed, finds herself after doing something stupid. And she, she's been going through um, depression and lots of bad things happening to her in life. And every um, book on the shelves, and there's an infinite amount of books, every single one of these volumes on the shelf is a different version of her life and she can get to live that life by by opening up these books and she's got a librarian there to guide her so she now has a chance to undo all her regrets to live life differently she feels like she's let a lot of people down she feels incredibly unfulfilled she feels like she's made every wrong turn possible so now she finally gets to see if the grass really is greener and if there were better worlds out out there for her and she kind of has to work out how to live you know before the library crumbles before she's sort of lost and before she dies um she has to try and work out fi find her own um reason to live basically via seeing um what what those other lives can offer her and it's a relevant time to give the Samaritans details. If anyone is affected by what they've heard, please call them on 116123 or check out samaritans.org. The Midnight Library, as you said, is all about these different books. And one of the first books that she picks up is the Book of Regrets. And we've kind of touched on regrets already. But do you have any regrets or do you see it as experiences? So, for example, when you did try to take your own life, do you see it as a regret now or do you see it that you had to go through to rock bottom to be able to get over it to get to where you are now um i see it as i see it as what it was i suppose i mean when i look back at that i don't i, I feel immense in that particular moment i feel actually that's one of the few moments i feel immense proud pride about that period because it took such courage in that moment to to live um you know not to be too melodramatic about it but it, it it was i had no idea how to live because i was in such pain just living was painful um and i i literally had no roadmap to how to get out of it i i didn't even know what i was going through i i, I kind of had the words depression in my head and anxiety but i didn't really know what if that was what i was feeling so i i look back at that and actually i'm i, I i'm pleased i went through it i would not want to live through it again but I, i'm kind of pleased that I, I learned from that experience um you know you can only say those things with hindsight i've got i've got regrets in life and, and and certainly throughout that period of depression i was regretting being unaware of my mental health before becoming ill because i think that was my problem as a young person i was um I was drinking, I was taking drugs, I was not sleeping well, I was, um, you know, pursuing jobs I wasn't interested in. I was, I was, I was just trying to mask um, what I was feeling. And that, that was a regret for the period I had depression because I kind of knew that had been a mistake. But beyond that, I don't really, I don't 
generally have regrets was little things you know like when i was a teenager i, I stopped playing the piano I, i've been relatively quite good at the piano my mum had always been into me having piano lessons and as a teenage boy the last thing i wanted to tell my mates i was doing was going for my friday evening piano lesson so you know i i have that normal thing that people have oh i wish i'd kept that musical instrument up or that this and the other but in terms of major life regrets i i don't i feel like everything is yeah, had to happen the way it happened within this lifespan and, and regret is kind of futile because it, it takes you out of the present it stops you actually living in the now and and so regret is its own regret you know regret regret if you're going to regret anything i absolutely love that man i absolutely love that what does it mean to be alive for you um i suppose it means to be aware i think it means to be aware so what i mean by that is it, well i mean it's a very broad idea but you know just being aware of um of mortality that we have a limited amount of time and that that actually is quite uh, you know gives it extra value and uh, to to tell the people who who you love that you love them to experience things you want to experience to not put off till tomorrow things you'd really like to do um and to just be appreciative and grateful and try not to spend it in that state of fear or regret or uncertainty and try and just sort of give yourself up to the present moment because as well as regret i think the other thing that actually stops us being fully alive is fear so while regret is about the past tends to be about the past fear tends to be about the future and those two forces regret and fear you know even if we don't have a mental health problem i think they kind of shape a lot of what how we live our life and how we feel about ourselves so uh, you know, for me, they're the two obstacles. And I, I've obviously, as someone who's experienced and can still experience very high anxiety, fear is a big thing for me, you know, and this year has been full of all kinds of fears. We've been encouraged to feel from the media and stuff and with good reason. You kind of have to accept that actually the past we regret and the future we fear, they're both hypothetical concepts. The only thing we absolutely know is the present that we're in in front of us and when we get to the future that's just going to be another present um i never thought i'd get to this present i was convinced i would be dead at the age of 25 i'm now 45 officially middle-aged and quite pleased about it because you know it's an age i never thought i'd get to and yeah it's just about gratitude and giving yourself up um to the present and to life itself but how do you find the fear, though? You're putting yourself out there on this podcast, in your books and on social media, and you're very vocal on social media. Is there that fear that every time you're putting yourself out that something's going to be out to get you? Or do you now look at it in a, this is me doing something positive for the world? Oh, I have been very thin-skinned in the past. It's definitely true. And I've been very sensitive. And that's about a dangerous combination for Twitter is being sensitive combined with being opinionated. And that has been um, my curse over the years on Twitter particularly. But I do seem to have a bit of a better relationship with it now where I actually understand that, A, you know, people, you know, social media... I mean, it obviously is real life because we spend so much life time on it. But people people don't fully see you as a human being necessarily in a fully fleshed way. And you can't let that 
you know you can't control how other people respond to things and if you're going to put something out there you cannot control the response i mean even having a book published which is obviously you know was something i always wanted and i'm still very grateful for it but it's it's still a moment of total uncertainty when you put a book out there in the world it's suddenly not yours anymore you you have no control about how it's going to be reviewed you know um and it, it's 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 tricky and i i've struggled with that i'm very sort of like i like things to be sort of ordered and controlling you know because i've got that sort of anxiety but it's very very comforting if you can actually embrace that uncertainty and actually you know appreciate that you can't control what other people think of you you can only control to a degree or at least you can only work on what you think of you and it, you know you can't judge yourself on someone else's worst opinion of you someone who's got some obviously fictional version of you in their minds you know because if you like I sometimes feel I don't even know myself so why am I bothered about someone who's just judging me off one single tweet what they think about me you know and yet we, we, as a species we're so bothered about that sort of external judgment but if we can get past that it is um, so freeing. And I, I wouldn't say I'm completely there, but I'm definitely more there than I used to be. You know, it used to totally ruin my weekend if if someone had sort of quote tweeted me and said, oh, God, Matt Haig, he's the worst. He's toxic. He thinks this or that. And it used to really bother me. And that, now somehow I just I feel like that's there's a sort of force field where it can't actually get in, where I know I am something different to that thing that's being attacked which is just their idea of something and they're just sort of that performative twitter anger thing so yeah it's all about perspective and we can't ultimately control the world we can't control coronavirus we can't control twitter or what people think of us so we have to somehow um, find ourselves in uncertainty and I, th I think actually uncertainties can be quite a positive word because yes it's the source of anxiety, but it's also um, the source of hope. I mean, if you think about what hope is, it's about uncertainty. So, so you know, if something terrible is happening in the world, but the uncertain nature of that terrible thing gives us hope. You know, we've seen that a lot in 2020, you know, and, and it's in those hard times that you actually need that hope and optimism the most. So again, that's another paradox of depression. Depression made me an optimist because optimism was the only thing that was useful to me because pessimism was just fatal so optimism you know you know so when when people sort of dismiss optimists or people who like happy endings or whatever as as sort of somehow superficial or a bit shallow i think it's the opposite i think i think it's actually pessimism is the luxury because pessimism is the thing that you can only have in the uh, good times when when you're actually in the hard times you need hope and you 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 absolutely that's that's when you become an optimist how does that transpire and correlate then to friends and family so you've spoken about the social media and that sense of hope but when you're looking at your f intimate family and friends and people are getting to know you and you're putting stuff out, for example, like your book, or you're saying things on social media and it comes back to Matt Haig, or is it Matt, oh, Matt of mate Matt, who's got some issues around his mental health or, you know, your kids going, oh, daddy, you know, suffers from mental health. You know, how, how does that change? Because we're very much always talking about you, for example, but you have got an external circle around you that also gets affected by what you do and what you put out there. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, you know, that was one of the problems with Reasons to Stay Alive, because I wrote Reasons to Stay Alive, genuinely not thinking many people would read it. Then it became my biggest book up to date. So I, I just became known, um, certainly for a short while and still to, to, to today, to an extent, as sort of a person who wrote Reasons to Stay Alive. And obviously, Reasons to Stay Alive was a book that's got my mum and dad in it. It's got my partner in it. It's got my kids in it, it's, it, it you know, and, and I can remember there was a Guardian interview, um, the first bit of promotion I did for, for it. And one of the questions was um, on page 70, whatever, you say that your dad said, you've just got to pull yourself together. What do you think about that? What's your relationship with your dad like? And I just thought, oh, God, you know, but taking that out of context in the book, you know, in the book, you know, my dad definitely did say that. He did say, you're going to have to pull yourself together, but he said it in a very sort of tender way. He said it as he'd sort of run out of words. You know, there's different ways you can say you've got to pull yourself together. And he said it with a hug and he said, but then it was taken out. And then I just felt so bad. And then my mum rang me up and I was like, she said, why did you say that to the journalist about dad? And so, so much guilt. And, and like, so yeah, I, I, I have had moments of extreme guilt about that. And there's certain things I would probably take out of reasons to stay alive if I could go back to writing it and, and realizing it was going to be a bestseller and everything. And I mean, that's definitely something that I've learned along the way. But I, I will also say my, my parents have been particularly great and open and encouraging of me um, talking about mental health. I'm also very lucky to have a partner who who is like that. I, I feel like I, I, I kind of know where the line is. I kind of generally now know, you know, what w would potentially upset someone or hurt someone. And I, you know, so if there's being honest and then there's being, you know, just disrespectful and I try and walk that line. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said I always got that right. What would you call the book of your life, Matt? I know obviously you've written loads of books, but as the Midnight Library is all about books, what would you call the overall picture of your book? Oh, I don't know it was really oh you must have had this question on every done. interview you've done though I had, well not not exactly not about what i'd call it i feel like oh i don't know i feel you know yeah i mean reasons to stay alive would possibly still apply um but even in a non-depression context life itself i don't know um yeah i don't know i don't I, I genuinely don't know johnny that's terrible isn't it but i i don't know i feel like because I, I feel like, I, I i like to as soon as you like put a title on something it becomes kind of fixed and i feel like life i'd call it i'd call it um untitled i'd call it yeah i'd call it something that was just sort of free and like it could be because i feel like life is in continual motion so i don't really know who i am and I'm really pleased with that because I like embracing the mystery of it. There's been times in my life when I, I think I know who I am and that kind of limits me and I end up sort of getting depressed somehow. So I, I kind of like feel like as a person that I want to be a good person. I want to care about people. I want to care about the things and stuff outwardly but inwardly as me i don't really know what me is i don't know if I, you know if there's a soul or i don't know what that is so yeah I, i'd struggle with an actual proper a proper memoir a proper life story i'd just call it life story
What an amazing, 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 amazing person. And uh, again, if you are affected by anything you've heard, please do call the Samaritans on 116123 or check out samaritans.org. Matt Haig's book, The Midnight Library, is out to download now. Now, this is the first time on this podcast in nearly 50 episodes that I'm putting it out unedited. Matt is such an incredible person. I want you to hear every word, every breath and take in everything he's said. He's given you such important lessons to learn from. His book, The Midnight Library, is amazing. It's going to take you on an amazing roller coaster. You are going to start reflecting on your life. You're going to put the book down. You're going to throw the book to the other side of the room and you're going to keep reading because our lives aren't all good and happy and simple. We do go through hard times as well. And in Matt's book, when his character Nora picks up the next book and tries out a different type of life, she also experiences things that were good and were bad. And it does get you thinking. But honestly, it is the best book you will ever read. Along with The Tattooist of Auschwitz by Heather Morris as well. I've been Johnny Seifert. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast of Circadians. If you like what you heard, please do rate the podcast. Please do like the podcast and subscribe to it. It's so important that you help me get it up the mental health and wellness charts on iTunes. So please, those comments do really mean a lot to me. And tell a friend. Tell a friend to listen to Matt Haig in Matt Haig's words. Because he's done so many interviews out there for the Midnight Library in the press. And as he said, The Guardian took one quote out of context a couple of years ago. Newspapers do that. I don't do that. I don't sensationalise anything. I'm not there for a headline. I just want you to know Matt's story because he is so incredible. And as I said at the top of the podcast, I really look up to him. I've been Johnny Seifert. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Secure the Insecure with Johnny Seifert is sponsored by Jennings and Co-Financial Planning, helping to make sense of money. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.